So my name's Alec. I'm I have an MA in international security, and I'm doing freelance journalism at the moment. Uh, my main focus has been around like private military companies, uh, Russian foreign policy, uh, Russian defense, and also Ukraine at the moment. Uh, and yeah, that's pretty much me. What's the difference between like a private military company and like a mercenary? Because like I always think of like South Africa when I hear mercenaries. You know, where's the line draw there? There is a, a good paper that I read on this, um, which basically argues that the, the word mercenary itself doesn't really mean anything anymore. In general, it was a vague term used to refer to someone who fought for money. Um, but the problem is when you're trying to distinguish between like private military companies or like um, black market, you know, private armies, it's not really a helpful phrase to use. What I would say was executive outcomes as a private military company. They had an office probably somewhere in London. Uh, they had offshore accounts going somewhere. Uh, we know that they were from South Africa and they were providing services through contracts. And most of that, you know, you could trace with paperwork. Uh, you could probably buy shares in the company that Executive Outcomes was owned under. Whereas with like, you know, an irregular private army, like I don't know, for example, a force in Liberia of, you know, people that just fight for money on the black market, uh, they're not going to have any ties to a company. Um, and, you know, you, you literally have to approach them in a very informal way to hire them. That's really the main difference. It's normally the kind of corporate structure that they're under, the way you'd access them, the way they're funded, that kind of thing. That's how, what distinguishes them really. Who's the most notorious, like top three most notorious PMCs? Um, I would say the ones that are most impactful are Dynecore, um, Blackwater in terms of reputation and people call Wagner a private military company. I don't really agree with that, but I guess if you're talking about these weird money for higher um, formations that Wagner would probably be up, be up there as well now. If you wouldn't call Wagner that, what are they? So, um, Kimberly Martin uses the term semi-state security formation because Wagner was founded by the GRU and the Russian ministry of defense. Um, they are like, created basically a created state venture um and they don't quite occupy just a regular military function but they don't also occupy a mercenary function uh, they kind of do a bit of both uh some some of what they do is just for money a lot of it is just work for the russian state um so they're in this really weird gray area um uh, they're not marketing their services like blackwater would and uh they probably don't need to secure contracts with the Russian government in the formal way that, like, you know, Blackwater would have to with the American government, for example. I thought you could hire them as long as you're not American. Um, Wagner? No. They helped shut down China when COVID started. There were some on the roadways there. Um, Wagner basically is normally part of some kind of deal that you'd strike with the Russian government. Uh, you'd have to be in the graces of the Russian government and they might provide services based on that. Um, but a lot of the times when they've been provided in Africa, for example, it's been part of like economic trade deals. So like, for example, there was this trade deal struck with the Central African Republic and Wagner was just one component of that. Um, so technically the Russian government has to vouch for you before Wagner ever turns up anywhere you are. Whereas, you know, Blackwater could hide from any, you know, could be hired from any NATO country. 
without having to approach, you know, the U.S. government directly for it. You, like, can't get Blackwater out of the room. Like, every time you turn, like, I think there was just something where Ukrainians were like, oh, this is a great solution. I'm like, guys, no, do not get Eric Prince involved with your defense. Like, he's constantly trying to sell something to someone. He's also implicated with Trump or something like that. There was a lot of stuff going on there, some lot of fishy stuff. The interesting thing is he approached Wagner at one point regarding Libya. He's actually helped uh, General Khalifa Haftar bypass UN arms embargoes by trying to traffic in weapons for him. Um, so yeah, Eric Prince is uh, notoriously flexible and an unreliable partner and also just when Ukraine's trying to be a Western country, uh, the last thing that it wants to do is to hire someone that's just the antithesis of just breaking international law and not having red lines and just a lot of mess. And there's a reason why the Americans buried him after Iraq completely, just on a formal basis, they just stopped using him, really. So he moved to Dubai and set up that weird venture there that failed and then he helped Haftar. Trump is using him, though. Crawled right into that circle. Well, he was always connected to the right-wing political establishment. I mean, he's the relative of Betty DeVos. Uh, Betty DeVos, rather. Um, so, there are people that I think want him to come back into the fold, but they're not serious people in Washington. Uh, most of them know that he's baggage. Uh, or if you're going to do work with him, it's going to have to be very informal. You're not bringing him for the large contracts that you had, for example, for executive protection in Iraq that were State Department issued or logistics, you know, from the DOD. That ship has definitely sailed, especially after what he's been implicated for doing in other countries. Why not just go work for Russia then? Russia's not a good market and it's political suicide. China, now that's a good market. Yeah, I saw he. I saw um, he's he in a company called G Services. He is involved. Uh, he's a shareholder and an active member of Z G Services. That's named the company, uh, and that's stationed out of Hong Kong. And I mean, if it's stationed in Hong Kong, we know who it really works for, right? Um, majority Chinese uh, board of directors and everything. He's already involved in places he shouldn't be if he wants to work with the Americans. Uh, so. He's also doing Middle Eastern stuff too, but so is everyone. Um, the Gulf monarchies want private armies quite badly because uh, they have relatively small populations and most of them don't want to serve. But what's interesting with these with these Gulf states, I've brought it up before, but there's like uh, in Jordan, that's kind of where like all these like Gulf leaders go to buy their guns and they, they have like this massive training grounds in Jordan and stuff. So like they get these like, complexes built all over these like authoritarian regimes to like train like elite ops and stuff like that so it's it's a very interesting market down there because it all goes through jordan and jordan is just like you never hear about them and it's like that's that's how to play the game you know like they're on top i think those states are just a really big source of money because they all don't want to conscript their population they don't all don't have enough volunteers and they all know that there is a lot of former American and Western guys that don't necessarily want to move on from the military. So it's a perfect solution for everyone involved. And all those Gulf countries, obviously, they have great relations with America and the West. So basically, all of it's approved. 
Um, and the Gulf states are obviously always worried about Iran. They're always worried about the protection of natural resources in the near vicinity. Um, and these companies are perfect for like protecting oil rigs in like places that are not so stable, like Libya, for example. Um, we know that there's a company called Black Shield based in the, from the Emirates that had German uh, former army guys. And they were helping Haftar guard um, oil, oil, oil fields and stuff like that and mineral extraction facilities. Um, so it wasn't just Wagner that was there. There's a lot of people looking for that kind of work um, in those states. Who are their interests? Do they, what are their interest groups? Are they just the Gulf states there or is it like other people for like what other what other entities are is uh getting russian funding or chinese funding or american funding any sort of big state oh so in what sense in what sense yeah probably all like um, and to what to what extent is this more so if we're talking, let's, let's talk about like uh, colonialism here, you know, like the Middle East, that's ours. All right. Russia isn't getting in there because, you know, they're more friendly with Iran. Right. So it's like um, that. But also the Middle East can also be considered North Africa, where you have Libya and Egypt. I think Egypt is pretty much basically NATO at this point, but then it gets a little sketchy the further out you go. Morocco, that's basically NATO. So there's different alliances on how these states are going to line up. You know, I think that's what he's trying to get at. Who do you think is backing Haftar? Um, uh, NATO, NATO, Haftar has some, back. NATO has some people in there, but we've brought this up before a few times because um, there's a few NATO guys in there. But also, like, you know, there, people end up on different sides and everything, but it's still like NATO is a very broad category. That's the thing with the tankies. They think it's like a unifying, like, imperial force where it's like, supreme command and things like that but you know morocco is isn't going anywhere because they don't they don't they're not interested in having like an arab spring or anything like that so they're just gonna you know do whatever they need to do to keep themselves uh just fine and with libya unstable morocco's benefiting anyway so and uh there is only one nato ally that's screwing over all those nato allies supporting haftar and that's turkey um Arguably, when the Russians sent, <laughs> when Russia sent in uh, the Wagner guys to help General Haftar, initially they were doing really well, and Haftar was on the up, and all of a sudden came along these Turkish Bayraktar drones on the side of the government of National Accord, and they blew the living crap out of them because um, the Russian anti-air systems were not doing what they were set to do, which is to respond to threats like that. Um, and it's very interesting. People think that on all sides, NATO Why has can't like, we drone Assad, view, though? and everyone's really happy. I'm not sure people are prepped for what happens after Assad. That's the problem. Um, I don't think there's a, there's any idea of what you go and do after Assad's gone. The power vacuum would be insane. It's why the Turkish are warming up to working with them on the Kurd issue. It's just easy. It's just far easier solution for Turkey. It's why have a whole destabilized state when you can just deal with the actual only one that you have any political incentive to deal with which is just like the kurdish population right um why have a destabilized Assad and 
all of that. It's just too messy for them. This is where Turkey's Same running the Americans into a brick sure wall, though. To deal with it. Turkey, Turkey's running into a brick wall here because the Syrians went through a genocide. They had nerve agent used against them. That's like, you know, it's like trying to pacify the Kurdish resistance against Saddam. It just wasn't going to happen. And it's not going to happen this time either. So the fact to think that you could make Syria a stable state with Assad in power is just kind of like a, a pipe dream. It's not going to happen. Uh, you know, and the no thing one is, wants like, to. I was just going to say no one wants to invest resources in getting him out. That's the problem, because you're not necessarily wrong until Assad is there. Things are probably never going to be good. But nobody is willing to say it. I, I don't think it's going to be that long. There's arguments for weakening Russia and Iran by screwing Assad over. I think that might get everyone on side. Um, that's, the, that's the one thing that I think is really bad for Russia is, the, you know, that warm water port they have in Tartus uh, that they got because they worked for Assad. That might go. And we all know who's going to help uh, whichever forces get rid of Russian occupation there or Assad forces there. We know which kind of countries will be helping that, right? Uh, we already see Israel striking the crap out of IRGC targets. I'm sure the yeah. Americans might warm Wait, up to giving the SDF little, more stuff. The the uh, Israeli, I mean, with the word we know that a bombing on Iran, a major bombing on Iran, is upcoming. It's just going to happen. We know it is, and we've been seeing these small drone attacks on their munitions all the time. But I was listening. There's this great uh, YouTuber, Professor James Lindsay. Um, he was talking about how there might be a Ukrainian motive in these drone attacks that Mossad is doing because Ukraine has made threats to Iran. Like we've warned you like once, you know, or something like that. And you cry and they were like, and Iran was like, you want to explain that? They're like, no, we don't. So, so Shahid drones got destroyed. There was a Shahid drone factory that got destroyed. That's not the, that's not the thing that the Israelis came in to do. They don't give a crap about Shahid drones. They want to take out the nuclear facilities and all the other military industrial complex targets, right? The Shahid drone is designed to penetrate the Iron Dome. So I would say they absolutely have a moral interest there, but also is They did it for Ukrainians, I think. Yeah, so I think that there's I think there's no way to do it without Mossad being involved. Just like how like yeah. when Al Qaeda targets get taken out in Iran, it's always Mossad who does it. Like it's always and the thing is, and that's the thing is because you see the you see the policy like everyone's saying is like whatever Israel wants to do, we're behind them is all they're saying is they're not gonna do it, they're gonna let Israel do it. And that's the thing is is that Iran is already at war with Israel. To deny that it's not is just ludicrous. And it's not like they haven't done it to Saddam before, and nothing bad happened. It's great for the Americans because they don't want to get tied up anywhere else, and the Iranian deal has fallen through. Like, there is no cobbling that back together. So letting the Israelis handle that problem, which is how they see it, is they're all, they're all for it. Um, especially since it's going to actively harm Russia's chances of, like, you know, gaining weapons like Shahid drones, which are an actual issue for Ukrainian anti-air. Because they're cheap, and Ukrainian, Ukrainian anti-air has to use up a lot of ammunition to shoot them down. Um, it's really screwing them financially. Like, the cost-use difference between the Shahids versus the anti-air is so huge. So yeah, uh, if the Israelis take them out, that's incredibly useful for the Ukrainians, and also works for the Israelis. Which is why I think the Ukrainians are less critical of the Israelis publicly now. Because they were for a while, and all of a sudden that's changed. Because Israel won't take a side. 
But wasn't Israel funding or yep. sending arms to Azov? Wasn't that a thing, or was that Russian propaganda as well? I'd say Israel had a bit of a Turkey policy where it was kind of playing both sides a bit for a while. Because um, they obviously want to show the West that they are not like completely abandoning Ukraine and they take Western commitment to it seriously. But I also don't want to antagonize Russia because they want to have the ability to to operate in Syria without being shot down with uh, Russian anti-air systems. Uh, I think they struck a deal secretly with the Russians to say, like, we're going to go after IRGC targets and in exchange, like, you're not going to target us. Uh, and we won't take such an antagonistic stance on Ukraine. Uh, but maybe the Israelis are realizing that there's probably no point of trying to be reasonable. And um, so now they're actively screwing Russia over by, you know, harming the Iranians as brutally as they are right now with all these kinetic strikes everywhere. Uh, speaking of Israel, it just reminded me how the, the the conspiracy came out that there is a cabal of Israeli uh, working to, you know, favor their interest in certain politics. And, and uh, I was just like, you know, just how it's going to just give credence to all these conspiracy theories about Jews and things like that. Not like every country doesn't have the same thing that influence politics, but, you know. So it just gets into the topic of information warfare, you know, and how Israel is one of the best at it. Yeah, um, everyone talks about this information war stuff like it's exclusively a Russia-Ukraine thing. But uh, even on that conflict itself, there are so many other sides probably doing their info war stuff. I'm sure Iran and China are actively involved in pushing anti-Ukrainian narratives. And I'm sure the West is doing their own stuff, targeting Russian populations with like, propaganda to make them more nervous about the victory and stuff like that um to make them more nervous about russia's prospects so uh i think a lot and all of, these states learn from each other i think a lot of it is like you can see that there is intimidation tactics going on like the whole thing with like threatening nukes like there's not an actual nuclear threat going on putin just knows that it's making the right wing more adamant about not sending arms to ukraine and he is desperately trying to claw in there and really use the fringe that he's built up over the years. Because it's like, I mean, we literally have Russian agents in our government now, basically. Like, they don't even know they're on the paybook for Russian. They're just that stupid that they've been manipulated into it. So Russian uh, disinformation is really good in that it has, like, a second-order effect. People don't really know that they're spouting anything Russian It's because it anymore. operates on half-truths. Yeah, that's that. It's so effective because it operates on half truths. It finds these things like uh, there's some American-funded bio labs, and then they go they're making bioweapons in them, ignoring the fact that there's no like high-level biosecurity level labs in Ukraine anyway. But it doesn't matter to them because it's it's all about the fact that there are labs. It's got nothing to do with the specifics. It's just ranting for ranting sake it's interesting anything framed as like um western money in ukraine is seen as like this nefarious plot by western states to fund something that's going to screw russia over and uh, the crowd that you know are pushing this idea that you know all of this is a waste of money and america doesn't have good infrastructure because we're sending billions to ukraine or whatever uh they kind of capitalize off that uh idea of like 
this money is going to destabilize a country for the, in the most cruel way possible and no one is benefiting from it at all and it's all so horrible and uh, everyone's no one's winning and everyone's losing uh, so we need to make sure that we don't give a single penny more to Ukraine. I think it's how Marjorie Taylor Greene puts it. Um, it's very cynical and it arguably has a lot more Russian origin than even Marjorie Taylor Greene or any of these other useful idiots know it does. Uh, dumb anecdote. What's really funny is if you look at, um, this, that's one of the things that I like to do is look at conspiracy theorists and stuff like that. Like I really like looking at Pakistan and how, and like Turkey and how they believe America caused the earthquake. I like looking at those types of things. But what's really funny is that if anyone writes an article with a stock photo, they'll lose their minds. Like there's like photos of like, it's like reporting on COVID and they're like, clearly it's a mannequin being like carried for like a stock photo. And they are like, so behind that conspiracy. It'll be like, bro, it's a stock photo. Here it is. I found the image tag. And it's like, do you think stock photos have to do with conspiracies? And they're like, only when it has to do with COVID. Like the way that they'll get in these, uh, these tracks and just like go down these rails and, and where they can't like invalidate anything is just insane. I think it's interesting you touch on uh, a misunderstanding some people have about Infowar, which is this idea it disables all critical thinking. That isn't actually true. It just focuses on selectively making people critical and stuff. So for example, um, a lot of the disinformation stuff about Ukraine, uh, the critical thinking is turned off about the idea that like, without sending money or aid to Ukraine, uh, the war is just going to be prolonged, right? They don't think about that. What they do think about though, is like there being no sight and end to this conflict and the increasing risks of a nuclear war. They're very attentive to that, but they're not attentive to like the alternative of what happens if nothing gets sent. Um, the, the other thing that they fundamentally lack is the... Uh, the ability to understand that if Russia didn't invade, none of this would happen, and all yeah. that needs to happen is Russia leaves. That's it. And it's over. It's and done. the problem is, I blame the West a bit for that, in that they talk about, like, Putin can't leave without, like, losing his power. I'm not sure I buy it. Um, there's plenty of presence of dictators, like, uh, managing to... To rudely interrupt, um, I would say that they have a very good point there because that's exactly how Putin took power with the Yeltsin. I don't know. I, I think there's been precedence with Saddam Hussein, for example, losing uh, in Kuwait, in retaining power despite losing a war. Uh, I think it can be done. And I think people don't understand how repressive the state structure is in Russia to be able to deal with this dissent. I think it's actually a Kremlin talking point to say, like, if you get rid of Putin, something worse can come. Um, and that, you know, if we lose a war that's not existential in the slightest, where we're not even fighting on our own land, uh, you know, the Russian country will turn upside down. There'll be like 12 different private military companies fighting for control and all of this crap. I, I think a lot of it's excitement about Russia collapsing, but I think it's actually unhelpful because it creates a, a false happened, image of like what it's happened before. It's true. I'm not dismissing it, but I think there's too much certainty about it. Um, and I don't see a lot of people pushing back on it. And I'm not sure if it's wishful thinking or just uh, doomers worrying that like nukes are going to go in free fall and we're all screwed if Putin goes and all of this stuff. People are going to think what they're told to think at the end of the day, I think, at the end of the day. But um, 
a huge a huge part of this is that um they just had this uh, pathetic little rally that they had and there was all kinds of characters that showed up to that and it just kind of shows where russian disinformation affects and it clearly is people who don't go outside and touch grass very often and that's kind of what we saw yeah it was very weird fringe think tankers and just straight up attention seekers it's actually the two most common types of people that about this disinformation on behalf of the russians well it's so... funny because they ran a um a cover campaign to try and explain away the russian flags that were there um but it turns out that uh cpi the center for political innovation they claim that they're the ones who brought the flags because they weren't associated even though they were one of the sponsoring organizations and were on the poster so like if you're working with people who will literally bring russian flags and you're letting people speak like gray zone max blumenthal and jackson hinkle among others who just are openly pro-russian and openly support the invasion I mean, you're not really anti-war, are you? You're pro-invasion. What I found funny about that was that Scott Ritter still got disinvited. Even Scott Ritter is so bad that even that crowd of people could not handle him being there. Uh, And I think it's because, some people claim it's because of his pedophile uh, conviction. Um, I have the feeling it was actually because he wrote something that was so emphatically pro-war that they couldn't even justify bringing him in. Um, I think it was something about like an Atticus Finch quote and calling like Ukraine a rabid dog that needs to be put down. Well, it's and... funny you mention that because Jackson Hinkle, the day after, went on to Russian state television and then the day after that posted a tweet that literally outright said, uh, how you've asked if I support the special operation. He goes, yes. Just straight up just said yes. So he went I mean, on Solovyov's show. Solovyov's yeah. a fa- very big propagandist. Um, so you've got all of this, and he wants to claim that he's anti-war. I think it shows you how small and desperate these groups are. Um, the fact that they can't even unite people that have a consistent message on the war. This shit looks, this isn't the crowd that came up today. This is like a pride event. This, they got like German flags. It's like they're trying to like, what is this? Like, is this, a, oh, this is a different rally. Okay, never mind. Sorry. I thought it was like some like thing that they're trying to mislead people with, like showing fake crowds and stuff. Knowing uh, East Germany as well, I bet you there's a lot of fascists in that crowd. Because that's a, a population that's been targeted a lot. The East Germans have been very radicalized by Russian uh, disinfo. Um, but even that's not a very big crowd for a country like that. Uh, and that's the thing, the Russian disinfo tries to portray these movements as so huge. And it's all these people hate Ukraine and it's so terrifying. But you look at the size of the crowds, uh, a lot of them aren't actually very big. And the events themselves are not very impressive. You know, Jackson Hinkle as a speaker is not exactly a, uh, a mark of an exciting event of anti-war protest, you know? He's such a doofus. <laughs> He's an attention seeker. I don't think he even has a view. Um, he just thrives off the attention. He was a Bernie guy for a bit. Uh, Why are they all Bernie guys, though? Isn't that weird? 
very, very weird. I, I, I don't know what it is. I think people like all the grey zone guys, they realize at some point that a career in defending dictators is just really, really easy. It pays so much money as well. Because Aaron Mate is like a well-off guy because of this. Or Max Blumenthal as well. They make a lot of money. Even well, though I look at their engagement and they're not actually getting read that much. But like, like uh, Aaron there, he's like, uh, people forget this, but he actually started on Democracy Now. And now he's on Jimmy Dore. And like was a uh, Nicaragua, Ortega, right? So or there was just elections. This was maybe two, three years ago. There was an elections. Obviously, he was locking up political opponents and stuff. And so, like, Democracy Now! reported on it absolutely neutral, like, said that there's, you know, said that there's, you know, reports that he's jailed opponents, like, totally neutral reporting. And he's like, disgusting. I can't believe that this is how they would report on this. Like, and it's like, bro, they're just, like, reporting, like, what happened. People did say this. And it just, like, triggered all of the useful idiots to start being outraged by it. I don't did you see how he denies the Assad war crimes? Like, with the Oh, my God. Crimes? It's really pathetic. He uses this one weird source that claims that all the investigation was rigged. And yeah. the weird thing is, is like he ignores like all the other investigations that prove that he did use them anyway. And in that one investigation, it turns out other people came out and an OPCW did a report again. And they invalidated the only claim that he had of this guy going on record yeah, saying how he's, everything he's was been rigged. having a meltdown because of it for a brief little period there's no question it happened but i think there is an interesting question to be act, uh, asked on if chemical rockets were sent back because the when we're talking about things like chlorine it's extremely easy to weaponize that as a chemical you know so there has so i've heard stories about rebels using chemical weapons but I've also seen like no definitive evidence of the rebels using chemical weapons. It's also too much of a talking point with a lack of proof, which is a sign that it's mostly a malicious narrative. The problem is every time I've heard it, there's a connotation of like the CIA is giving these white helmet guys and these rebels chemical weapons to antagonize Assad so they can frame him up. And then destabilize poor Syria that loves Assad and all of this crap. Um, that's the problem. The, the, the fact finding that these guys claim they do has always got a nefarious agenda. So even well, if you here's just a theory, right? As the uh, Dagu plays the toy in the background, but here's just a theory: if they're raiding Assad's munitions and Assad already had chemical rounds to begin with, how would these people know that they're actually using a chemical round? You load that artillery shell, and you'll never know. I mean, there was plenty of times in Iraq where we were finding chemical munitions that were like rotted in the middle of the desert that like somebody forgot about again it's um, one of those things where it's very possible but it's just the issue is is that aaron doesn't need much proof to concoct that narrative and that's the problem with a lot of these so-called you know critical anti-imperialist journalists is a lot of them just don't think fact-finding actually matters it's about always trying to find a counter narrative whether there is one or not and that's the real issue with those type of people. They actually do a disservice to people who are trying to hold governments accountable. Because whenever other journalists do, they can just say, oh, are you like Aaron Mate? Do you just blame the US government for everything? Uh, are you fabricating this as well? That's the real problem with these people's types of journalism. Um, it makes it living hell for people actually trying to do proper fact-finding. Aaron Mate is like kind of like our favorite one to pick on him, but... 
as far as like the disinformation network, he's really more of like the Assad narrative and like the Russian disinformation network goes a lot deeper, you know? Um, the stereotypes aren't are people like Aaron who are like career grifters. The stereotypes are people like Dmitry Symes who owns national interest, who's a Russian asset, for example. Those are the scary people because in DC, it's considered respectable to write for the national interest. It's still considered normal and no one in America questions it. And Dimitri Symes himself, who owns the national interest, has gone on Russian state TV. Everyone knows who he is. Um, those people scare me the most because I don't see the West doing anything serious about that. Arguably, maybe there is nothing that can be done. Freedom but... of the press. Yeah. And um, to, to interrupt you, since I already started, this is something that I kind of say is that, you know, it's that Spider-Man quote, with great power comes great responsibility. Freedom of the press and freedom of the speech are two of the most dangerous things that you can actually give people at the same time. And that's the thing is, is that people have taken their rights for granted in the West and Russia is exploiting it. And they have been since the 90s. Putin came to power through fascism and disinformation and he's still using it to this day. I mean, China does the same thing. Their whole MO is abusing the West's um, liberties against them. And it's all in their, that unrestricted warfare book. It's this also why the decadent West narrative exists. It's this idea that the West has these weak points, that their pathetic tolerance and free speech allows them, you know, to have exploited. Um, the issue is, is that also the ultimate longevity of democratic regimes is longer. But the problem is, is they are also incredibly vulnerable. And what Western states don't understand is that you do have to fight an information war and you do have to constantly push back on like these illiberal ideas or like I say liberal as in basic free speech and all that stuff. Um, defending that is a constant task. And if you take it for granted, you, like actors will move in to try and make you lose it. Uh, and it only takes five, 10 years. I mean, you look at what's happening in the GOP in America, it's terrifying what's mainstream is of you. Like, the fact that cooing, that was just such a weird coup. Well, you know, that actually did a lot of damage around the world because, like, even Iran was pointing to it and being like, look, elections are fake. Democracy doesn't exist. Clearly, Donald Trump won. And they, like, and this thing is, is, like, Trump was in line with all of these people. All of these people. And that's the, the thing is, is like, the, the deal that he made with Kim was fucking insane. Like, where he's like, why don't we just talk to North Korea? You can't fucking talk to North Korea. Like, he like, got him out, though. He did. You and that give him was that. cool he and got, all. He got him out. That was, he will forever be remembered for that picture of him crossing the line. So actually, you mentioned, uh, the, like, Trump's opening a can of worms with the election denial stuff. I remember Myanmar started using that excuse. They said, like, oh, all the voting is rigged and it's all fake, so... The military government actually has to make sure that these votes are real. So we're going to take power until then. And, then, you know, you had Brazil as well. You had that little January 6th episode. Um, it's actually terrifying what a president, one guy like that, can set for the whole world. Because every authoritarian state is now using that playbook. Um, well, it's like also you look at like how many laws he broke and how criminal it should be. And our criminal justice system isn't even set up to like prosecute the president, you know? So there's like all these holes and stuff. And then he has defenders inside his own party 
And it's really insane to me that like there is a plausible chance that like this dude could get elected again and just basically give Ukraine to Russia, give Taiwan to China, and just like do like horrible fucking havoc on the on the entire world. The only thing I'll say to that is the DOG and FBI really want him nailed for stuff. The FBI have a very personal vendetta with Trump. And it will keep going. I used to say that I wouldn't be surprised if the FBI arrested him as he was leaving the Oval Office. I used to say that. And I honestly believed it. And I'm surprised it didn't happen, honestly. I think it would have been, I think they didn't, they they did, they don't bother because it's going to cause like a riot and this reaction and all this stuff. And he has all these, he has a little fascist army behind him. Yeah, it is terrifying that militia network he has behind him. If things go badly for him, it's scary that he could just mobilize a bunch of these like two percenter types and he literally could give the word, being like, you know, like attack the democracy, bring arms and stuff like that. He could do that. He wouldn't because like that would be really stupid. But he is really stupid at the same time. This is just something that could happen and obviously won't. Just like Putin could use nukes in Ukraine. Yeah, it's a good point. Um, I think in both cases, there's always an appreciation of leaders like that to know that they have those kinds of options. And just letting other people know that they have that kind, those kind of options gives them a lot of power as well. Pe- people talk about Putin making nuclear threats. He doesn't actually make them himself. He has his propaganda do it for him on TV. But what he does say is basically stuff that is like a subtle threat, like saying, you know, if West keeps sending arms and this will spiral into something that's terrible, it's not really a threat, but everyone knows what that means, right? I've seen him say we have nuclear weapons and we'll use them. He said that for, uh, I think, when it was the referendum, you know, where they had those fake referendums for the four regions that were annexed. That was, yes, you're correct. I think that's what, yeah. But he the, said, like, we'll... also in the, uh, the Russian military doctrine that tactical nuclear weapons are in their arsenal and they will use them. Do we think military doctrine matters for this man? Because no, I, from everything I've seen, everything that, goes on be, the fly for the Russians. That'll, yeah, like, that'll be the justification for it, though. He'll be like, well, it's in our doctrine. He'll say that they made him do it. Uh, I have a feeling it's... Uh, the best play he has right now is to move those nukes to Belarus. That's the one play that he has uh, that isn't actually risking nuclear war and nuclear exchanges. Uh, but the problem is, I think the Americans are going to respond by shifting stuff to Poland. So I, I don't know. With this nuke situation, I don't know how either side can actually coerce the other with nukes in any way that's meaningful to any of them. Um, well, that's the thing that I was, I was saying, like, it's way more realistic to see a chemical weapon used by Russia there, but we don't know how weaponized their chemical arsenal is. Like, they've made claims about weaponizing these these extremely complex level, like, six nerve agents and stuff like that. But as far as we know, you can't really use it in, like, a binary shell. You can't launch Novichok in a binary shell, as far as we know. You know, who knows? Dispersal is a real problem. And it's very hard if you're in windy conditions for it not to go on your own forces, or in general for it to even spread in the way that you want it to. Uh, it's why general chemical weapons are just such a messy thing to use. Um, it's unlikely that they're effective or they even go in the right place. Um, this, this reminds me of, you know, a funny video where, like, I think cops used tear gas outside the Capitol at one point, And the tear gas actually went back on the police itself. And it's just, like, ridiculous, like, how um, 
susceptible to those weapons are to just basic things like wind and all of that. And... I mean, this is World War One. with, like, one of the first times they tried to use chlorine, they killed themselves. I think also both states have created taboo Ukraine and Russia both talk about chemical weapons as being horrible. And, like, the Russians have accused the Ukrainians of using chemical weapons. There's actually been fake accusations of chemical weapons on both sides being used. Um, but, uh, I had I have a post that I saw the other day. There are these little like gel ball mints, and they were like claiming that it was rat poison. And it's like the amount of rat poison you need to kill somebody is fucking insane. Like it is not something that kills people. It was also a stupid um, video by like a Ukrainian drone unit that like had these yeah, things like... in his fridge that was labeled as chemical weapons but i think it was just shit posting and the problem is that shit posting is really stupid but both sides seem to be obsessed with doing it for whatever reason maybe it's just like info walks or for, for giggle well this but, is something uh... that people uh, were asking me a lot uh we we're seeing the isis flag uh among the ukraine forces and people were asking me about this a lot so i started looking into it and like the the size of people that i had like i saw like a rune on the throat fascist guy with a you know with the finger up the isis flag with somebody else like i've seen it on like uh uh a lot of people's arms and stuff and i figured out that this is an inside joke with drone operators because russia always compares them as using ISIS tactics because ISIS were like the first ones to pioneer this type of drone warfare. I think there's always an underestimation when people look at like the symbology of like what the Ukrainians or Russians even wear. A lot of it's just fucking really internal stupid humor. Um, there is obviously the fash stuff and like people do downplay it a bit much, but like, but I think, I think a lot of that fascist stuff is also like just kind of part yep. of embracing a meme at this point. And like, they know that it pisses off Russia and that's the sole reason they do it. Even the like the right adjacent groups, like you can tell, there might be some fascists in them, but a lot of them are just doing it for shit posting. Like in general, when you look at the actual posts, uh, all you see them talking about is like we want to kill the enemy, blah 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 blah, or like montages of them killing shit. Um, there's very few times where you actually see them like committedly talk about like white nationalist topics, right? So uh, um, I think it's pretty reflective of Chan culture. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there was one group that, that was like posting about like, oh, it's the Austrian painter's birthday today. And everyone's like, oh, Adolf's birthday. And like, they were just pretending to be like really happy about Adolf Hitler's birthday. And you can tell like barely any of them were serious, but the problem is the irony of like them talking about it is the whole joke. Um, and so it's very funny to see people often read all these symbols and take them extremely seriously, like ISIS flags on Ukrainian guys and, uh, anime patches on Russian soldiers and all of that stuff, it's just all a lot of it's all just completely stupid shite for the units to amuse themselves very often Talk a bit about um, Wagner uh, What aspect of Wagner I can talk about, the tactics or uh, Yeah we can talk about their tactic and talk about where they are and how they use their tactics So if we're talking about Ukraine um I've spoken to a few journalists about this, and what they seem to do is um, people have this misconception of them using human waves, which in like a World War One fashion, where hundreds of men go charging, and they're all getting gunned down by Ukrainians. So uh, the reality, I actually have a lot of opinions on human wave tactics, because I actually have like basically seen them firsthand, like not like up close or anything like that, but like there there have been 
um, events because like this was like um, one of ISIS's uh, principal strategies was using human wave tactics. And the reason they were so successful at first to build the caliphate was because they were using these types of tactics. But immediately when they like fought the Kurds, like you would go out there and there'd just be thousands of bodies outside the like city lines, like where a hill was being defended because they literally like are sending like these fat kids in flip flops that came from Britain, like basically not even giving them a gun. They give them like a knife and, and a, like tell them to go for it. And they were just getting mowed down because if you're trained and you know how to shoot, like you shoot the guys behind the line. So they don't even know the dudes behind them are dropping and you can just start taking down the entire line and sweep them like that. So that's the thing, the comparison between like what ISIS do and what Wagner do is misleading. Like a lot of people, I think on the Ukrainian side, want to portray it as like hundreds of guys being launched and just getting machine gunned. Um, what actually happens is they're sent in small groups of five or 10. And the reason why they're sent is because professional Wagner units that are behind them send out drones and see the convicts being attacking positions and seeing where artillery is firing from, where Ukrainians are. And then based on that intelligence, then the professional elements will later on conduct their assault. Um, so it actually is quite effective. And when you see these bodies of like 50 or 100 Wagner guys, what's happened is that that's been over hours and hours because they will send nine and 10 uh, man group teams every so often until until they can basically do a professional assault, right? Um, but that adds up so much over time and it's done on so many different axes of attack uh, that you do get these footages of like these 10 or 20 poorly equipped conscripts, just, well, not convicts, sorry, uh, just lying in a field. Uh, and there was a bit of too much of a meaning about like how useless Wagner is using them, but they were doing it to reduce like their burn rates for their professional guys. Um, it's not a sustainable strategy, but it worked for them for a while in Bakhmut. Um, and the Wagner guys had to expend a lot of ammunition and stuff to deal with it. So I've seen this video. It's the um, the guy has a Telegram channel called Terminator. Well, yeah, because what I was going to say is, is like this is what I think is a pretty textbook scenario where it's like this guy, like he's clearly experienced, he knows what he's doing, like, and he's just like these guys have no idea. There's like moments where they're way out in the open, and you can see them just like lining themselves up to be shot. And I think this is type the, the exact type of shit you're talking about is like Ukraine is just putting like one guy out there because it's so much harder to like probe the positions when you have guys like this out there. So they're sending these inexperienced guys in like small groups. And that's why this guy knows that he could get a quick, awesome video real quick because he knows there's only going to be like 10 guys coming. That's the thing. The Ukrainians always adapt to this stuff because... Um... The issue is you can't give complex orders to convicts like that. Um, so it's really, really easy to adapt. And yeah, this is kind of the right strategy to have one guy handling the small team rather than having loads of clumped up Ukrainians ready to, you know, get shelled by artillery that Wagner guys can scout, you know, uh, positions with for like, for like drones and stuff. Um, and then also when it comes down to, well, I mean, we are talking about the, uh, the Shahid drones, right? And the economic cost of it. Well, I mean, mm -hmm. if, if I, at the end of the day, 
there is an economic cost to human life. You know, like when you look at it, yeah. it's a war. It's all about the StarCraft game. You have to care about your unit's economy. Um, so the thing is, is like when it comes to Wagner, how many of their guys are going to ascend to kill one guy? You know, so it's and I'm talking about so the, the, convicts, elite, the elite guys, you know, uh, like once they know this guy is here, are they really going to go through the trouble of like sending an entire elite team out to kill this one guy out there? So I can tell you the elite guys are crafting and that um, the elite guys do infiltration, reconnaissance and sabotage operations. And when they're sent into, for example, forests or to go behind, you know, Ukrainian positions, they do slaughter a lot of the guys a lot of the guys in those backline positions are territorial defense force guys um so the professional guys like the way that they used it it does cause real problems uh and because they're quite ballsy and they have that experience fighting in like a lot of them have that experience fighting in libya syria or even you know in ukraine before 2022 um they're no joke and actually there's been I've seen videos of what is clearly Ukrainian special forces hunting these infiltration reconnaissance teams. And sometimes they'll wear Ukrainian uniforms as well, uh, the Wagner guys. So they can be a real fucking issue to deal with, uh, the professional ones. They're no joke. So it's like right at the start of the war, they had, you know, hunter-killer teams disguised in Ukrainian uniforms going after people. And like just committing... You know like, what's insane? I was just going to say, you know, what's actually insane. There was um, there's a semi-state security formation or PMC called uh, Readout. And they were sent in from Belarus and they sent literally thousands of guys. And you know what their job was? To take out the internal intelligence service of Ukraine and Kiev. Literally take out the whole building. And like they all failed. But they managed to actually get to the place to start trying to do it. Um. And what's terrifying is like they sent in so many people. And if the West didn't give the intelligence to the Ukrainians about this, they arguably could have succeeded. Because um, they sent in some of the best guys they had, um, very well equipped, with billionaires buying them, like, you know, light armored vehicles and giving them the best health care and giving them the best weapon modifications and all of that. It was actually really terrifying to read about because everyone was like oh the russians got battered so badly in that assault but things were quite scary in a lot of places and a lot of times um if the u.s intel wasn't there who knows how bad it could have been uh because otherwise ukrainians would have dispersed their like equipment right they wouldn't have placed uh that whole brigade in you know the airport that the russians tried to land the vdv in uh it could have been a real shit show it's too bad we couldn't have this type of intelligence support with our Afghan allies. Yeah, oh, the Afghan thing is another thing entirely. Um, I still don't know what to make of the withdrawal, to be honest. Oh, I have opinions on it. Um, basically, that it's needed to happen when it happened because it's all going to come down to it was going to be an election issue if he canceled that. And then they're going to say that he's a warmonger because he's in Afghanistan and in, in Ukraine. So because we knew it was coming down the pipeline, we basically were in a scenario where we had to pull out. But the thing is, is the way we pulled out, like we were out of there, like, and we had to turn around and come back because like, we didn't, we didn't like, we didn't provide any logistical support and we let Pakistan completely get behind the Taliban and just wipe, wipe out these people who we spent so many years and so much money building up. And we're not even going to like, 
give them a little bit of intelligence. And you remember they're like giving estimates. We're like, oh, they could probably hold out for six months. That's that's like like it's ridiculous because the same thing was said about Ukraine, right? Where they said they're going to get destroyed, they're going to be wiped out by Russia. I even said it, right? Mm-hmm. And then it happened. And on day three, they're like still like holding on, like Russia's in a traffic jam and like, you know, nothing's even moving. You see it locked down and you're like, oh, this war is actually going to last. And I think one of the big factors there was probably the intelligence. I would say the real-time intelligence is one thing. I would say that was another thing. Uh, pulling the U.S. air support, fuck the Afghans. I'm sorry, they were just not trained long enough to be able to handle air operations by themselves. The only and reason why... Not trained not... long enough, and then also were fighting a state power that was giving intelligence to their enemy. Yeah. And yeah, the two and two go in hand. For close air support, you need intelligence. Um, my other issue was that the amount of special forces Afghan guys that left behind, we actually have rumors that some of them are recruited by Wagner to train Russian soldiers. I mean, that's a fucking disaster to not recruit, to not try and evacuate all of those special forces guys. At the very least, like what a, what an unbelievable decision to take, right? Um, a lot of people argue there wasn't any other way to withdraw other than this is a hasty way. But I think there was no excuse to leave behind that many interpreters or that many. Uh, if you're going to be cynical and say, you know, Afghan was going to fall anyway, at least take back the guys that you've trained so much, right? Um, otherwise, you're just going to fall into the hands of someone else. Um, I think arguably in a cynical way, you could argue that this is a good decision long term and that it creates a problem for China and Pakistan now. And uh, even the Russians potentially to have this unstable region with a government that doesn't really work. But... So I think, uh, like I said, when it comes down to it at the end of the day, human lives have an economic cost. And as far as America's concerned, that these lives are just not valuable. And that's what it comes down to, is that the amount of money that it would take to continually support a logistic effort here, just wiping our hands of it and being out and just you know, not having to worry about any economic uh, commitment or anything like that. Uh, it was just a very cutthroat capitalist measure on just like how to do it with saving money, not about saving lives. Yeah, I think morally, when you see the picture, you, you can't like justify the decision. And uh, I think some very cynical people call the shots on that uh, because the way that, especially the way that Trump managed to secure that pullout, was incredibly messed up. I think during the CIA this goes campaign, back to the whole thing I was saying with North Korea. This is a big part of it, like dealing with the Taliban the way he did. He gave them everything. Like you just sit, like basically shaking hands with Mullah Baradar. Didn't they bring him to like Washington D.C. or something like that? I know there's a picture of Pompeo shaking his hand, which is like ludicrous to me. So Pompeo was weird because he was shaking their hand with one hand and he was also actively running arguably the most brutal campaign with a cost protection force being backed by the CIA to basically run absolute havoc on the Taliban. And the thing is, a lot of Taliban got slaughtered in that campaign, but also a lot of civilians died. In that short period, more civilians died than for like years of that conflict Um, because that CIA campaign was so fucking brutal. I don't know how you could justify something like that, especially when it led to that kind of pullout. 
um, the fact that like that's something that uh, no one gets any crap for or like doing what they did with the cost protection force which is by the way recognizes a terrorist group by the UN um, we've actually uh, have talked about the cost protection force before but not in a while and maybe not on this show specifically but and then um, the like they are they also are notorious for operating inside of Pakistan as well so they were actually a hunter killer team that would go across state lines into Waziristan and apprehend people. And they would also authorize and do forward um, forward operations for close airstrikes on these people and stuff like that. So it's like when we see like airstrikes um, in Waziristan and like drone strikes in Waziristan, a lot of times there was like human agents on the ground directing those strikes to happen to um, limit the amount of civilian casualties. Obviously, when you bomb a wedding, you can see when there's not those types of people there. But there is evidence that these things were being called in on the ground, which is like super illegal, you know. But and you it's know, US we're the armed world overwatch. It's US armed overwatch as well. Those are US. Yeah, the, the call sign I think was Eagle as well. Yeah. Which was the CIA base at the time. That was what was so messed up was that uh there were basically close air support was always next to these cost protection force guys. Uh, they were really, really, really well equipped. Really well equipped. Uh, aid to Ukraine? Yeah, can do. Um, so there's basically a faction within, you know, Olaf Schultz's inner circle his inner advisors who believe that we can still go back to something that was like uh, German and Russian relations before the war. Um, it's a very desperate idea that if we're soft on Russia, um, that things might get back to normal and we're not going to go into nuclear war and also Europe will be more stable for it. Um, the problem is, is that obviously the, the Russians don't seem to appreciate any of these so-called softer measures that the germans have adopted i mean leopard tanks are still being sent everything's just been everything is done by germany that the russians don't want just at a slower pace and no one's really benefiting from it and the problem is is that all nato countries are trying to practice a graduated escalation where they don't send too much to spiral things but they steadily want to send stuff over time the problem is what the americans think is like risky it's like up here and the Germans are only willing to meet it like here. Um, and that's basically the whole hesitation is about like it ending, spiraling into a never ending conflict, German weapons being used to go on to march on Moscow and obviously nuke stuff. Those are the real three main things that are stopping them from perhaps being a little bit more decisive, but they have done a lot as well. Uh, they are one of the biggest contributors of aid. There's only one stabilizing force in Europe. America. To wrap up yeah. at the end here, we sent uh, we sent a few links to each other. So um, I figured we could pull up some of the stuff that we've sent in here just for a little wrap up period. And um, yeah, that sounds good. Um, let's let's start right with this one. Um, the new information narrative. Um, General Michael Flynn. Oh, I got DMs open, but it's just you, so it's going to be okay. 
Um, but, uh, you know, general of the military is now going on record saying that there's no war footage of Ukraine. Lynn was always a nutcase, though. I know, but it's just like, it's the fact that the, it's like this was a guy was a general and the fact that he got there. It just it just amazes me how the like how easily if somebody really, really, especially back in the history, like wanted to, like the libertarians are always talking about how like Lincoln is a dictator or something like mm-hmm. imagine if something actually was like a dictator in those times, how fucked America would have been. He is the only president to suspend the Constitution. Fuck that guy. And something that, I don't know if it's true or not, but I heard something that, um, the, what was it called? The something proclamation that freed this, gave the... Emancipation uh, Proclamation. Yeah, it was only for southern states, but the northern slaves weren't freed until the 13th Amendment, something like that. So, I don't know, I don't know if that's true, but I saw that somewhere. I thought if that was true, that'd be pretty funny. <laughs> So I don't know. No, 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 no. So this is this is what you're getting confused of. The Emancipation Plot Proclamation freed all slaves in the Union. The Confederacy wasn't part of the Union. So that's yep. what I think you're thinking of. Um, as far as uh, as as far as like suspending the Constitution or anything like that, um, it was a civil war. The whole state system and the constitutional system no, is and also, dysfunctional. You didn't you didn't bring up the big one, which is that he had like the most executions of like natives of any president. Did he really? That's an interesting fact. Mm-hmm. Killed a lot of. Uh, there was like one of the. It was because there was the biggest native raid in like U.S. history occurred during his presidency, or something like that, and they like hung a bunch of them or something. Uh, this this cat's her stuff. Yeah, we're just showing like these screenshots of like everyone talking about like with Vietnam, you saw more footage and stuff like that, and it's a copy and plaster message. Uh, you know what it is? I'm not sure how much of it's Russian disinfo and how much of it's like just contrarianism for the sake of being contrarian. It's it's super hard to to dig through. Like it's always so hard, hard to tell to, dis- to define. Because this, I guess, the copy and paste and messages come across as actual disinfo lines. Because um, the intensity of how many people are talking about there being no footage of the war. But it's also it feels like it's such the, an unnatural spike. It's the it's the copy pasted nature of it. Yeah, you know, and it's like Cat Turd is like a pretty well known like account. So it isn't it an alt right account. Yeah, 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 something like that. But that's the thing is, it's like, it, it, like Elon Musk is like, like direct communication with this account. We see it all the time. Elon Musk talks to some actual Nazis. Like he talks to Ian, Ian Miles Chong all the time. He talks to Andy No. Uh, talks to all kinds of people that are just. I'm just. I think that's probably one of the things that's tanking the company. To be honest. He was also pushing this propaganda stuff about Victorian Newland being the only person that wanted the war or something like that. Um, is it is this where they um, where they used her saying that there are bio labs to justify their bioweapon bullshit? 
because there are biolabs, they're just insignificant because everyone funds biolabs everywhere? I think, no, they were talking about the call where she was saying, like, they were naming the people, like, oh, we're in play now, fuck the EU, like, these are the people we're going to get in cabinet. And they were talking about people who would be included in a peace deal with, not peace deal, like a deal with Yanukovych. But people portrayed it as them, like, picking a government from a coup or something like that. It's just a ridiculous understanding of like how Euromaidan happened. Um, I I was like looking at like what was going to be pulled next, and like I just I didn't realize we were talking about Euromaidan um, because that's one of my favorite things. Considering I was there, you were and, there. Uh, yeah, so it's like really funny is because they'll they'll oh like I don't really fuck with people a lot online. But, like, um, at the beginning of the war, before, like, they were, like, really cut off and, like, NAFO existed, people would be talking about Euromaidan, and, like, I'd let them go on and on and on, and I would be like, yeah, I was there, and, like, shut them down, because they're so used to, like, the tankies are so used to engaging with people who, like, aren't Ukrainian or weren't there. But, like, as far as, like, journalists go, like, a lot, every journalist was there. It's just ridiculous how you can be uninformed about it when it was, like, the most covered well, the most just ridiculous. Yeah, so this is something that I talk about is that um, being in college at the time and coming back and like nobody having any idea what happened, nobody talking about it. And I'm like, are we like, I just saw like, I mean, I didn't see anything really. I was just in the hotel the whole time because I wasn't about to go outside because like, I'm not going to go fucking die for like a shitty internship that I'm getting college credit for. But, you know, uh, people just overthrew a government with rocks, you know, and like just coming and like the the fact that it's like just uh, seeing people die like that and um, just like if the West just completely oblivious and just like nobody gives a shit about anything at all ever here it's like the, the That's isolation my... is insane you know what was dangerous about that it was it was arguably what opened the way for the russian disinfo to take hold so much the russians were covering it all the time and no one in the west gave a crap and that's why the russian narratives grew online because there simply wasn't a counter narrative there like even after crimean annexation everyone covered it and it was like okay that's it now like no one was following the a war in like eastern ukraine you know um and that really is what allowed these ideas of ukrainians being nazis and it being like a puppet government and zelensky being an anti-russian or all of this crap it all grew because of that lack of i mean you literally like um like vice news would be out there covering it and they would be like oh now we're gonna go talk to the extreme nazis and it's like and like um that's the thing is it's like um even at Euromaidan with like right sector like um like that's all like there was a huge focus on that and like nobody talks about this but the georgian legion was like involved with them mm -hmm. and like uh the the commander of right sector was georgian like i know i've you know i was there like i saw him and that dude was actually had guns shooting back at the russians and things like that but like the details on um the details on it on both sides are just completely skimmed out because one side didn't cover it and the other side just lied about everything. Yep. And they didn't, the Russians never mentioned the fact that they paid people who are on the far right to something they did during like 
whenever you know the Ukrainian Euromaidan crowd would show up, there would be these like thugs showing up all of a sudden, riding the protesters, and they're on the Russian payroll. Uh, so what's this here with Jack Murphy about this deep dive of the CIA? Is this the guy that likes putting dildos in his bum? Is that that Jack Murphy? <laughs> different um, <one. laughs> it's probably a different one, mate. Um, so this guy, he is a former Special Forces guy, and he's like doing a lot of journalism, quite controversial stuff, but he claims that he has spoken to people that can prove that... Um, the CIA is helping a partner agency conduct sabotage strikes in Russia. Um, and like, you know, remember when all this stuff was setting on being set on fire in Russia and it happened to be all very strategically relevant stuff. Uh, everyone was attributing to the Ukrainians and saying, or saying it was partisans. Well, what uh, the about the execution of uh, little Dugan girl? Yeah, that's a... Based. That's a whole other thing. I have my theories, but um, what I do it's know is with this, you can it's, get them um... both. It's on the Dugan himself. It would have been a, just a very good situation. It would have um, it would have crippled Putin's inner circle, I reckon, because a lot of them apparently are influenced by uh, Dugan. Well, he's got their ear, apparently. See, I've heard that. I'm not sure how how true that is. Um, I don't think it's true at all. And and yeah, um, I didn't hear what you actually said. It cut out. But um, when I brought up like him, them killing their daughter, but I assumed you said that like, you know, um, it was uh, to punish Dugan himself or something like that. Is that what you said? Is that a good guess? Um, no, I was just saying that like that. Yeah, Dugan wasn't necessarily the target. Um. That they could have just been going after Daria specifically. Um, wow. Why, there, there's so many different yeah, parties they could, they could go. There's a range of theories. Um, one is that the Ukrainians are trying to create a false image of a resistance movement in Russia. Uh, the other was that it was the Russians cleaning up internal business. Maybe Daria was speaking to someone she wasn't supposed to, or that it was Daria owing money to someone. But people underplay her importance. She was the daughter who was going to succeed the Eurasianist movement in Russia. And the Russian state has a lot of incentive to control a nationalist movement like that from it not, not like dissenting with the government. And maybe the Russians saw something that was not good. Um, and the reason why I think it might have been somewhere, someone in Russia is because they came out with a really quick theory that it was Azov guys who assassinated her. And it was like the most ridiculous theory as well, like that it was a mother who was living in Russia that used to be an Azov that was doing all of this. And they also had a picture of like some guy in a weird hat as well as another one. Um, so I, I don't think the Russians are being honest about who actually did it. Um, but I'm not sure if it was like a Russian job or if it was a Ukrainian job. I know the so, Americans um, categorically denied it. There, what is, so right here it says, a NATO intelligence ally 
that doesn't necessarily mean someone in NATO, right? It just means somebody who we work with on an intelligence level, right? Um, it has to be someone who can get cells into Russia. And it's got to be someone in... My what bet is Mas either it's the UK what about or Mossad? one of the Baltic countries. What about Mossad? But um, I don't think the Mossad guys would want to risk it, to be honest. I don't think they're that committed on Russia in general. I, I think they're... Russia and Ukraine's a relatively peripheral thing right now, but they've got Iran going on and stuff, you know. Um, my bet is that for the Eastern European countries, because the Eastern European countries could get agents in really easily. Um, yeah, it's it's definitely someone in the it's either the UK or any of those countries that I mentioned, the Baltic ones. To Every time to... I press unmute, I, I press like... the message key. So, um, so if we had besides, like at the at oh. the end here, we had a pretty clean recording. But go ahead, and then um, uh, whatever Jack wants to like wrap on or something like that. Oh yeah, I was. Just but you say you that, talk um... first though, just to be clear. Fuck the damn interference. Sorry, I was just gonna say yeah. Um... Basically, some agents that were able to speak Russians flu Russian fluently and could fit in in a cell for years would have to have been the people that were doing it. And I reckon there's only a very small list of countries that could actually do it that well. And it's also a very expensive operation. Uh, so either the Americans helped fund it or there's a country that's got enough money to actually do this kind of thing. It would cost billions um, to plan this all out. To do the surveying to like have the caches of explosions to have the fake identities and everything it's a really difficult thing to do um i think to wrap how do you think uh where do you think russia is going to stand in five years Either it re has a relatively smooth transition of power to another Putinist thug, or the country literally starts imploding. It, when I say imploding, I'm talking about like separatist movements starting up, um, talking about organized crime getting out of hand. Um, all of these guys are forming these like private military companies will have enough small arms to start like having hired muscle. Um, so it, it seems like there's very much a binary. Either Putinism continues or it's just gone. Things are incredibly messy. The least likely scenario I see is like the liberal opposition coming into power. But there's still think Navalny will come in and I just think it's ridiculous. Uh, I don't see it. Liberal opposition and Navalny. Well, uh, those words don't make sense. That's just not two words that can be used together, my friend. Well, I've seen, well, Russian liberals. And also, he himself may not be that liberal, but a lot of the people that are 
working for him and the people that he represents are arguably pretty liberal. I, I think the problem is, is just he's not a good enough alternative to Ukrainian for the Ukrainians or for the West. He's strictly very good for the Russians. If they were going to have some kind of like democratic government that still retains some of that chauvinism and stuff, Navalny's probably their best bet. But he won't ever get to see power. Um, the tactics that they use, the Russian opposition is just very unwilling to recognize that they can't do just some protests and some marches and get a vote. That's just not how stuff like that in Russia works. Uh, it's far more like an internal who happens if any transitional power happens like that at all.